Well, thank you, Mike. Happy birthday to Ryan. Ryan is so old that uh, Ryan was my boss in college a long time ago, like ages and ages ago. So all my life, just trying to keep up with Dr. Boyce. So <laughs> I told him he didn't need to come today because him and Lindsay already know all of this. So uh, this is just by way of reminder then for him too. But uh, listen, we are in our fourth session. We're in the session that every speaker who speaks at conferences, whenever you're drawing the short straw, you never really want that after lunch spot because you just feel so good and so full, and you're starting to just fall asleep, and then somebody's like trying to give you, you know, valuable information. So, you know, if you need to nudge your spouse or whatever it might be, don't, don't feel any embarrassment or shame if you need to take a little nap. If I fall asleep, though, and start to take a nap, that's a problem, so come wake me up. But uh, anyways, we are kind of on our third C in this movement of talking about connection, communication, and then kind of finally, conflict resolution or handling conflict in marriage, because I'm hoping and understanding to some degree that, that hopefully the majority of the conversations that you have where you're communicating and connecting aren't conflict-oriented, right? That all of the things that we just talked about uh, in the last two sessions can just be related and can be utilized by way of technique, ideas, uh, methodologies to just help you have good communication. So I don't want to presume that every couple in here is fighting or having significant conflict. But if you are, if you're having any kind of conflict, whether it be garden variety conflict, acute conflict, chronic, or whatever, then I think the session that we're going to tackle in this time and space will be helpful. And trying to, again, just kind of put into practice some of the tools that we've already built and continue to add more tools uh, to that arsenal. So if you have a Bible, turn over with me to James chapter 4. James chapter 4, again, in every section, I just kind of want to ground our time theologically. Uh, David Pallison had a great illustration in one of his classes when he was talking about conflict. He would take the Bible, and he'd take another book, because he'd always have a couple of books on his stand, and he would kind of take the spines of the book, and he'd kind of just bang them against one another, and he'd said, sometimes uh, couples, when they're in conflict, this is kind of what it can feel like. You're just two people, a husband and a wife, kind of just banging your heads against one another. And he said, part of understanding conflict is putting the book down and opening it up opening up the book and reading what's inside so that you stop kind of banging your head against one another. And so one of those places where we can uh, sort of metaphorically, uh, as it were, kind of open up the book, open up the inside of what's going on in our hearts is James chapter 4. Because in these first three verses, James gives us, I think, a fascinating pathology of conflict and desire and how frustrated, disordered, unmet desires and expectations ultimately lead to conflict. So here's what he says. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? He says, don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and you fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures." James kind of begins his diagnosis of what goes wrong externally when it actually reaches the quote-unquote boiling point of conflict by first taking us on an internal tour of what's going on inside of us in the midst of conflict. And what he tells us, or at least the way that I would put it, what James is trying to tell us is that long before there's ever a war going on outside of you, there's always a war going on inside of you. Long before there's ever a war or a fight going on outside of you in terms of a husband and wife, you got to back up the tape, you have to rewind the show and understand that long before there's that war outside, there is a war and a battle going on inside. 
James tells us in these kind of corresponding sets, he says you desire or you want. That, we talked about expectations in that second section, so you can kind of sub out desires, expectations. You desire and don't have, so you what? You murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you don't ask. He says you ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. What James, I think, in many ways is trying to help us see the gravity of is that frustrated, uh, we can say disordered, backlogged, pent up, unmet desires and expectations internally always lead to conflict externally. And James is going to describe these frustrated desires as warring and battling against one another. And I think it's helpful to us to understand that language because I think it really raises the stakes as to what James is trying to get at. Alec Mattia, a commentator on this passage, writes this. He says, James is choosing the vocabulary of war to express controversies and quarrels, animosities and bad feeling among Christians, not because there's no other way of saying it, but because there is no other way of expressing the horror of it, right? When we think about two believers kind of having these frustrated desires and not handling them in a biblical, Christ-honoring way and just allowing them to come out into our relationships, I think what Alec Mattia is saying and what James is originally writing here is the horror of two people made in the image of God, called to live in unity and peace, allowing their relationship to break down over these frustrated desires, that's a true horror. That is something that should not be named among them. Uh, Paul might kind of put it this way in a little bit of an analog passage to this in James. Paul says in Ephesians 4.3, he says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And it's important to note that there in Ephesians 4, Paul is not saying that, that husbands and wives need to create the unity, because as we've already seen earlier, that unity is not achieved through anything that we do. That unity is achieved through who? That unity is achieved through Christ, right? Christ is the one who reconciles us to the Father. So the peace and the unity that you and I enjoy in marriage is bought, paid for, and won for by Christ. But you and I as believers and as husbands and wives in marriage, here's what we are called to do. We are called to maintain it. We are called to maintain it, to build in it, to invest in it, to seek after it. And so both James and Paul are reminding us, I think, of the danger of the, that doesn't happen when that dynamic of couples falling out of unity together. And I think that, that oftentimes we have to remind ourselves that uh, couples don't naturally fall into unity together, right? Husbands and wives don't naturally, or at least I find, fall into being like-minded, considering one another, and being on the same page. It takes work. It takes effort. That's why he encourages us, Paul does in Ephesians 3, to, to make every effort. Because we don't just naturally fall into this. It's something that you and I have to work at. A peaceable marriage and a peaceful marriage that enables couples to deal with their conflicts and deal with their unmet expectations in a thoughtful, Christ-honoring way, then, is, the way, is a way, then, that we can fulfill our calling before God. It's one of the most practical ways, I think, that we actually live out the truth and, and embody the truth of the gospel, not only to one another, but to our children, to those of you who have children, and then by extension to an unbelieving world. When a husband and a wife 
can handle and deal with their conflict in a way that honors Christ and utilizes the resources that Christ gives us, we tell a very compelling story of the gospel to those around us. And additionally, Christ tells us in Matthew 5, 9, he says, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And a lot of times in marriage, you will have people who are more than willing to break peace, to be a peace breaker, but you're also oftentimes going to find in marriage people who are willing to be peace fakers, people who are willing to say that there's peace and kind of put on a happy face and just kind of roll over. And we're trying to stay away then from both of those extremes of neither being a peace breaker, but also not being a peace faker, but actually being people who are called to make peace with one another in marriage. So let's do this. Let's talk practically then about how do we address conflict in marriage. And again, as you understand, we're building on all of the different things that we've talked about. So just imagine as we come into this fourth talk, I am wanting and hoping and desiring that you take all that we've already talked about, learned about, and hopefully already begun to implement to bring that to bear then on how we actually handle and address conflict in marriage. And so here are just some very specific things to do as it relates to dealing with conflict in marriage. The first of which is this, is, is have a plan. Have a plan for addressing conflict. I'm always surprised that we have plans for a lot of different things. You've got retirement plans. You've got academic plans for your children. You've got uh, career goals and career plans. You have uh, plans for how you're going to, to vacation, split up your time in the year, etc. But one thing that I find couples, especially when they come to me in counseling, I'll just say, hey, do you have a plan for how you handle conflict? Uh, when you do it, how you do it, how long does it last? Uh, how are you going to actually go about resolving and handling conflict? And uh, couples oftentimes, again, will, will kind of just stare at me and say, well, we don't have that kind of plan. We never have really talked about it. We, we talk a lot and we have conflict, but we don't talk about actually how we're going to handle conflict. And again, if we go back to James's epistle, we're reminded in James 1, uh, 2 through 4, he says, brothers, consider all joy when you encounter trials of various kinds. So we know that we're going to encounter conflict in marriage, so why not make a plan in advance, right? Thinking about when are you going to do conflict? How are you going to do conflict? What's the manner in which you're going to have conflict? And putting together, especially if you are more newly married or have not been married a long time, uh, it gives you an opportunity to set in healthier patterns rather than just constantly responding to the need of the moment. Number two, uh, set goals for biblical communication. Set goals for biblical communication. I'm not going to really talk too extensively on that just because we've spent really all of the last session talking about that. But one of the commitments, or hopefully at least one part of your plan in the midst of conflict, is to have a bedrock commitment to communicating to one another in a biblical way not to use sarcastic language, not to cut one another off, not to use profanity, not to, not to uh, diminish or to demean one another in the way that you talk, but to establish ground rules as early as possible uh, when you can as you approach conflict. And again, one of the things I'll encourage couples is that these types of things, these types of commitments, whether it be having a plan or setting goals for communication, are best done in peacetime and are rarely done well in uh, wartime. Meaning, don't try to suddenly have a plan or to play the role of the Holy Spirit talking about biblical communication when you're actually in the midst of a conflict. It's just never going to go well. 
right? Have some of these conversations about how you want to do communication and how you want to address conflict in a time of health, in a time of when you and your spouse, when you and your wife, or when you and your husband are in a good spot. To simply maybe over dinner or to maybe take a weekend away or a Friday or an evening and just say, hey, we're not in a fight right now. We're not in a major conflict right now. But hey, can we talk about not if we get to that spot, but when we get to that spot, what are some changes that we want to make? What are some ways that we want to change our communication and the way that we interact and engage one another? So next time we, we get on the heels of one of those conversations and we start to revert back to old ways, we're going to be able to recall to mind this conversation that we've had about, hey, we need to make sure that we don't do these conversations when we're tired. Uh, we need to make sure that we don't do these conversations in front of our kids or wherever it might be. That brings us to number three, uh, just practically paying attention to your posture, your timing, and your tone. I won't talk a lot about timing because I think we did that in the last one, but I will talk about posture and just kind of try to throw out some different postures that I find couples oftentimes get themselves stuck in when it comes to conflict. The first of which is uh, what I call the face-to-face couple. Uh, we're just posture-wise, you guys just get up in each other's faces where it's high escalation, where uh, both people we would say would be somewhat emotionally dysregulated, feeling a lot of either anger or frustration or irritation. When we think about marriages, we oftentimes put them on a spectrum of thriving and flourishing to destructive, difficult, etc. And a lot of those marriages that get to that destructive, difficult spot, it's because in times of conflict, we just, we kind of go toe-to-toe. We go face-to-face, right? We can be screaming or yelling or, or hollering at each other. And again, that, that type of posture is not going to be the type of posture that yields a positive, God-honoring result. Uh, the other type of a couple that will face posture-wise is what I call the corner couple. They'll just kind of each go to their own corners. So maybe there will be a big blow-up, but then the husband will go to the garage or go to the basement, the wife will go to the bedroom or go to the living room. But instead of actually having a conflict conversation, we each kind of just gravitate geographically to different points in the house. And so what we do then in those spaces, uh, we either simmer, we stew, we kind of rehearse negative narratives about our spouse and about their character to us, but we're not really talking, we're not really trying to maintain unity Instead, we're actually breaking it apart. Uh, The other one are what I call like phone-to-phone couples, couples who will just text back and forth. And again, that might be something that the younger generation especially finds themselves more engaged in. But I'll have couples come in and they'll just swipe and swipe and show me these long, I mean, like texting for me is like, hey, how are you? Are you on your way home? But I'll see couples having major life conversations and trying to flesh out conflict, you know, in text messages and whatnot. And again, I'm not opposed to using that at different times to help couples communicate, but these types of conversations, I think best in terms of posture are done side by side would be the posture that I would advocate for. So instead of face-to-face or in corner-to-corner or phone-to-phone, what does it look like to be side by side? Uh, scientifically and empirically, there's been a lot of different studies, and we mentioned this before, about just the role that positive physical touch can do in the midst of heated conflict. It's called co-regulation. And when we can co-regulate one another's negative emotions by simply sitting next to one another, like many of you are sitting here, what that does is it evens the playing field. It's not one person's up and one person's down. It's not face-to-face. It's not heated. What all of you are doing right now is you're just, you're orienting towards one another as partners. You're saying, hey, we're in this together. And even spiritually speaking, in some ways, just in the way that you're sitting now, you're saying, listen, we're not enemies, right? Our battle is not with who? 
Our battle's not with flesh and blood. Right now, right now, you are not my enemy, right? It might feel like that in a given moment. Uh, it might feel like you're standing in the way of me getting what I want or my desires, but we're actually side by side right now. We are co-heirs of God's grace together. So being able to sit on the couch, again, maybe you go on a walk together, uh, maybe you're driving somewhere and you're in a car and you're going to have a conversation, but that side by side uh, can do, I think, wonders for you in terms of how you resolve your conflicts. Physical touch, again, doing that uh, arm around the shoulder, putting your hand on the knee, uh, that sort of physical touch can go a long way in mitigating uh, when the conversation starts to feel really escalated. Again, the comment obviously here that I would make about physical touch is that it needs to be positive and encouraging touch, not abusive and destructive touching. Uh, number four is identify the real problem. Identify the real problem. I, I will tell couples in marriage counseling, uh, I, I want to try to save you time, right? Time for most couples is at a premium, and it's at a, a true value because there's just not a lot of it to go around. But I will find that couples will argue hours on end or have conflict hours on end about things that aren't really the real problem right? It's, it's kind of the tip of the iceberg. It's maybe the 20% of the iceberg that we see, but the real problem is really the what? It's the 80% of the stuff that's below the surface, right? But unfortunately, what happens in conflict is that we will hyper-focus on the 20%, the behavior, the actual uh, communication, and what we'll fail to realize and recognize is, hey, the 80% that's below the surface, we actually could make a lot more progress if we had the conversation about that. So let me give you an example. I had a couple in the room uh, just a few weeks ago, lovely couple. They love the Lord. They go to church. They read their Bible. They're engaged in the spiritual disciplines. But over the past few years, as their kids have gotten older, there's been significant disagreements uh, just about parenting and about certain rules with one parent wanting to be a little bit more lax with rules and the other one not. And kind of what has come to a head is the issue of sleepovers. And one of the parents feels more uh, willing and permissive to allow their children to do sleepovers. And uh, the other parent feels a little bit more cautious. And hey, I just don't think that we should do that for all of these variety of reasons. And what happens is they will get into these hour-long conversations and bartering back and forth. Well, why can't we let them do this? Well, why we let them do this, then this could happen. And, and the conflict just keeps going on and on, happens in front of the kids, and to the point now where it's causing significant division in a marriage that, at least up until this point, seems by all accounts very happy and very, very functioning. But as we begin to dig into it, again, the first thing that they wanted to come to the surface with, or what at least per se brought them into counseling was, hey, can you help us make a decision? We need help with making a decision. What do we do uh, if one person wants to do this and the other person wants to do this? But after a few sessions and trying to learn a little bit more about their family of origin and their stories, what I realized is, again, you guys have been spending countless hours of conversation on, should my kid be able to have a sleepover or not. But what's really underneath that, as we found out, is it's, it's one person's, it's one person's spouse, it's one spouse, rather, in the story who says, listen, the, the, the big picture for me underneath is I, I feel overruled. I feel like you don't value my contribution. I feel like my experiences or what I bring to the table in this relationship uh, isn't heard. You always kind of trump me. You always kind of talk over me. And it's really not at the end of the day so much about the sleepover, but the sleepover for me is kind of like the, I don't know, kind of like the, the Rubicon, as it were, of like we've, we've gone 
all of our marriage, and I've just given and given and given, but this is the line that I just don't feel like I can cross. And again, for the other spouse in the relationship, the sleepovers were just a very neutral thing. It was something that they did. It was something that they enjoyed. It just did not seem like a big deal. So in that spouse's mind, the other spouse's resistance at that moment felt very disrespectful. It felt very, quote-unquote, unsubmissive. It felt very dramatic, like, why do you have to make this such a big deal? But in being able to identify the real problem at the end of the day is not whether or not your son or daughter should be able or should not be able to do sleepovers, but it's more about how the two of you at a heart level are relating to one another. And if those things could be addressed, that might actually change potentially the outcome of how you do conversation. Now, it didn't magically change it overnight, what did happen in very short order was the way they were able to have that conversation. They were able to have that with a lot more understanding, a lot more respect, and in a way that ultimately they realized was going to build together more unity. So think about the conflicts that you most often have. Think about the conflicts that continue to maybe kind of keep coming up. We call them chronic conflict. The, the conflict that you just can't seem to get a handle on could part of the problem be that you're actually having a conflict about something that's not even really the problem. Maybe it's the 20% of the problem, and maybe what you need to do is to ask yourself, hey, what's actually underneath this? What's actually driving this real issue? And a lot of times, in order to get to that, you just simply ask it. Just say, hey, I'm sensing we've talked a lot about X, but I think that there might be something else going on below the surface. What do you think it is? Again, what does that do? It's a posture of humility. It says, hey, I want to learn. I want to understand. This is how I've perceived the problem to be, but I could be wrong. What else is going on below the surface? So identify the real problem. Next, listen to your spouse's story. We have talked a lot about listening, so I don't want to belabor that point. But again, I just cannot underscore how important it is to listen and to listen well in the midst of conflict. And so what that means is slowing down the conversation. It means focusing on respect. It means repeating back, summarizing. Uh, it means not monologuing, but dialoguing with your spouse to try to build that conversation. Uh, so much of conflict, I find, goes awry when we operate on misinformation, when we think that we're acting on something that we've heard, when that's not actually what has been said. And so we really want to strive to be good listeners uh, in marriage. Uh, next, we want to consider three possibilities. And uh, very early on, I try to help couples within their conflict resolution to sooner rather than later always ask these three questions. And I would say, first of all, you can always be asking these internally of yourself before the Lord, but you can also be asking them, uh, I would say, even out loud to your spouse. So these three possibilities, uh, did I say something wrong? Did I do something wrong, or was it the manner of what I said that was wrong? Did I say something wrong? Did I do something wrong, or was the manner of what I said or did wrong? So the first two lean more heavily towards content. The last one is a little bit more aimed at the process or the manner. So did I say something wrong? Hey, did I, did I step into a minefield here that I, I just didn't pick up on, right? A, a husband comes home uh, from work right? He makes a comment about dinner and just immediately realizes he stepped into it. His wife has a very negative or strong emotional response, right? Instead of pressing into that and saying, man, what's wrong with you? Like, you seem a little uptight, right? 
backing back and say, man, did, did I say something wrong? Is there something that I said that wasn't really based off of understanding, right? If I had spent time asking questions and listening, I would have known, hey, she's been really overwhelmed today. She's had a lot go wrong today. She's had a flat tire. Uh, the groceries didn't come in like she wanted to, et cetera. And just this is when you, when you come into the head of today, she actually didn't have time to put together dinner. And so when you ask that question and you're quote unquote stepping into it, well, yeah, you are, right? And so being able to recognize, hey, I could have said something that wasn't based off of understanding and thereby is, is going to get a negative response most likely from my spouse. Uh, did I do something wrong? Was the manner of what I said or did wrong? Again, we've talked about manner and tone and how that manner and tone is so important. Uh, the Gottmans, who I've mentioned earlier, they have done, again, a lot of different research about conflicts and uh, kind of their claim to fame is that they can say, hey, within 30 to 60 seconds, uh, we can watch a couple and we can determine what the outcome is going to be of a particular conversation just based off of the way that that initial dynamic goes. And in terms of manner, in terms of tone, one of the things that they talk about are harsh startups versus soft startups. Harsh startups versus soft startups. And again, this wisdom that the world provides for us really is just echoing back and just reminding us of truth that was already there for us in Scripture. Because again, Proverbs 15.1 says that soft answers turn away wrath in grievous words stir up anger. So when you're thinking about your tone or your manner, again, identifying what is your default posture. Do you tend to come in quite harsh and quite hot? Hey, what's going on? You know, what's, why are you acting like that, right? That might be an example of a harsh startup. A soft startup might be, hey, I'm sensing that something's not, not right. What am I missing? How can I be helpful right now in that situation? And I would say nine times out of 10, if we can do a soft startup, you're going to get to a positive goal at the other end of the conflict, even though there still might be a conflict, as opposed to a harsh startup is going to do what? It's going to break that opportunity for connection. That harsh startup where it's going to put the other person on edge, uh, potentially raise up some negative emotions on their end, which then is going to send the conversation uh, down a, a hill that you don't want to go down. Uh, the end goal and the outcome of that particular conversation is not going to be as positive if you can start it off with some type of what we would say is a soft startup. Uh, another step in this conflict resolution is growing in pattern recognition growing in pattern recognition. One of the things that I try to work with couples on in counseling is just simply doing a little bit of history work and kind of saying, hey, what are our patterns? What are some of the ways that we keep kind of getting ensnared or stumbling into? Uh, again, the definition of insanity is what? It's doing the same thing and expecting different results. And I think a mark of maturity for couples is the ability to grow in the midst of your conflicts, to realize, okay, uh, we've been married 10 years, and maybe we still have fights, but we're still not fighting about the same thing. If you've been married 10, 15, 20 years, and you realize, man, we are still cycling the same conflict, I would say, time out. Get off the merry-go-round of crazy. Don't keep doing uh, the insane thing, which is doing the same thing and expecting different results. So one of the ways that you can do that is growing in pattern recognition. What are some of the most common things that you fight about? What are some of the most common things you fight about? Just begin to grow in some of those patterns. When are some of the most common times that you encounter conflict? In what settings do you find yourselves most in conflict? Right? For a lot of couples, it might be coming up, right? It might be the holidays. One of the times where we see a huge spike in counseling appointments is Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's. Why? 
because the dialogue and the conversations about where do we go, how much time do we have to spend, how much are we going to spend on presents, do we have to go see your mom again, do we have to go see your dad again, how much, you know, how much time are we going to spend doing X, Y, and Z becomes a huge source of conflict. So if you're in September of this year, and you know that for the past 10 Christmases, it's kind of been hell on earth to get to wherever you need to go, maybe growth and maturity on your part could be, hey, every year we get tripped up when we start talking about the holidays and where we're going to spend time. Is there a way that before we, get to, before we get to the week before Thanksgiving, you and I can have a conversation where we focus on some of the things that we've already talked about, about building connection, to come up with a better way of doing that, Right? Wouldn't that be such a healthier way to to be proactive in conflict rather than to be reactive, right? So ask yourself, is there a common time when we get into conflict? Uh, For some of you, it might be more financial, right? Hey, whenever we get down to this number in our bank account, uh, we tend to go into conflict because the way that we respond to financial scarcity looks much different. Right? One, of us, one of us shuts down, or one of us gets really anxious, one of us gets really controlling, one of us just doesn't really care, right? Maybe that is a context out of which marital conflict begins to grow. Uh, maybe it's children. Maybe it's certain life stages that you get to with your children. Maybe it's schooling choices. Maybe it's athletic choices for your children. It might be a whole host of different things. But realizing and growing in that pattern recognition It's going to be a significant tool. And so, again, I've tried to give you all kinds of different little conversational points that you can follow up with after you leave here today, but maybe that's a point to kind of just ask your spouse on the way home. Say, hey, what do you think are our most common conflicts? What are some of the most common ways that you think that we get tripped up? What are some of the things that we just, man, we cannot get progress? Like for Jen and I, like I've already told you, it's driving. I mean, every single time we drive, it seems like we get in the conflict. So we have tried to do different things to make sure that when we get into that spot, we are better prepared. So we try to pray together before we go on a long trip. Uh, I try to let her drive, which I don't like driving as much. And we'll say, hey, probably would be better if you drove, you know, on this trip. Just practical ways of identifying, hey, a pattern of conflict for us is when we get into the car together and we're driving, it's an opportunity for both of our fleshes to kind of come to the surface. So identifying that pattern recognition is going to be key. I tried to include a little bit of a diagram there for you to kind of help you out of how that can kind of play out where one spouse's sin or weakness can open up another opportunity for the other spouse's unbiblical response. Maybe they lash out or get irritated, which then that other spouse reacts to. Then conflict ensues. And then before you know it, there's a lack of resolution right? That type of cycle, it's a little bit of a merry-go-round. So one of the questions that you can ask yourself after you've identified what are some of your common conflicts is, okay, at what point in this process can we change? At what point in this process can one of us hop off the merry-go-round? And you'll see in that cycle, all of you have different exit points, right? You can choose in that moment. Once you start to see that conflict come up, right, one of you could make a godly choice in that moment to walk in the Spirit and to say, okay, hey, time out, I feel like we're about to get on the merry-go-round again. I'm going to stop. Like, I'll tell you another silly example that maybe you can identify with. I'd say another common area of conflict between Jen and I is issues over scheduling. So we both have busy lives. We both work busy jobs. And inevitably, we will have fights and conflicts over, well, I thought we were doing this tonight. Well, no, no, didn't I tell you? I told you like five weeks ago that we had this meeting or we had to be here. Well, no, you never told me that. And we will just have cycles and cycles of conflict over scheduling issues and uh, who needs to be where and who's responsible for what and who's doing carpool and who has to be at such and such event. 
And before, whenever Jen would make questions and she would say, well, you never told me that, that would always kind of be our cycle starter would be, I would say, hey, I'm not going to be home tonight. I'm going to be at an elders meeting. I'm going to be at this counseling appointment. She would say, you never told me that. And I'd say, well, yes, I did. Yes, I did. And I'd get really, really defensive. And then she would respond, well, no, you didn't. We would just hop on the merry-go-round. I mean, it's like we took the ticket, we punched it, and we like hopped on in the span of like 10 seconds, right? And so part of the pattern recognition is, okay, when I sense that she's getting nervous about the schedule, right? Right then in that moment, I realize because of the other work that we've done, it's rarely about the schedule. It is rarely about whether or not I told her 6.30 or 7.30. It is about her not feeling a connection of quality time spent together, right? The real issue is not that I was out tonight and I told her and she didn't put it on the calendar. What normally I'd say 90% of the issue is over is she doesn't feel connected to me. We haven't spent a lot of time together. And so when she unexpectedly realizes that this time, which her desires are oriented for, of hey, we're going to spend a nice night together, just the two of us talking, when that dream kind of escapes and is now gone from the calendar, as it were, she gets, she gets upset. She gets irritated. And so if I don't meet that and if I don't understand that and I just get defensive of like, well, no, do you want me to go back through and check my messages and I'll show you because that's what I used to do. And, and, and trust me, that doesn't work. Uh, she's like, well, yeah, I've got all kinds of text messages. How do you expect me to like write down every single thing you tell me you're going to do? And we would go, just go through cycle after cycle. What we can do now on our best days when we're walking in the Spirit is to say, hey, I'm sorry that that happened. I, I don't think I communicated well. Why don't we find a time right now where the two of us can connect? And so realizing that at that moment, yeah, the 20% of the conversation cycle-wise is uh, the scheduling issue, but the 80% is the concern that we're not spending quality time together. So again, in this pattern recognition exercise, all you're trying to do is you're trying to say, okay, do you have a common conflict pattern? Identify it. And then once you identify it, find out where you can hop off the merry-go-round. At what point can one of you say, okay, time out. Let's not do this again. Let's save ourselves the heartache. We already know what the end result is going to be. Let's do this. Let's just try something different. And I think if couples can begin to do that, you'll begin to notice some, to you'll begin to see some noticeable changes in how you do conflict. Not that the conflict will go away, but that you handle it uh, in a different way. A number, the next one, there's no numbers here, but the next one is know that there's always hope in conflict. There's always hope in conflict. I find couples a lot of times, especially those who have been married a long time, will very easily, uh, they'll lose heart in the midst of conflict uh, because the conflict's maybe been going on so long or because the conflict can get uh, so difficult or even destructive in terms of things that get said that moving forward out of conflict, after you go through enough cycles of those, it can just, you very easily can lose hope in the midst of that. So I'll have couples tell me, you know what, we've just given up. We just know that that's a topic that we just don't talk about. Like I'll have couples say, we've just agreed to disagree, or we just don't touch that area, or I just don't go down to her craft room, or I don't bother talking to him about the garage. Why? Uh, because that's off topic. And so what happens functionally then in some of those moments is we lose hope. We lose sight of the gospel. And what I would want to tell you is this, is that in the midst of conflict, there's always hope. And the reason why there is always hope in the midst of your marital conflict is because of the hope of the gospel. If we look at, again, the storyline of Scripture, which we unpacked together this morning, we realize that the greatest problem of all time, i.e. our sin, which separates us from God, if that greatest cosmic conflict was able to be redeemed and resolved 
through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, then can you and I have hope to be able to solve our, our everyday conflicts? Absolutely. And not only absolutely, but we must. And so what we realize, friends, is at stake is that when we fail to resolve conflict biblically, we actually are doing a disservice to the testimony of the gospel. We're actually saying, yeah, the gospel is good enough for salvation and for like this cosmic conflict, but it actually doesn't have power to actually help me with this everyday issue that my couple or that my spouse and I are facing. And so when we're thinking about conflict, again, that's where sometimes we need, to, we need to hone in on what's really going on, but sometimes we also need to zoom out and get the big picture. We need to zoom out and say, okay, who is God and what is he up to in the midst of that? And knowing that what God is up to in the midst of that is that he's forming us, he's changing us, he's growing us, and that because of that, we always can have hope. Again, that I would say in so many ways is, is really different than how Christian couples versus non-Christian couples handle conflict right? In, in, in non-Christian couples or where the gospel is not valued, you can see why over time irreconcilable conflict becomes a reason to separate, becomes a reason to divorce because you realize, hey, that's just, it's just not worth it. We've lost hope in trying to, to work through some of these types of conflicts. I'm not saying that in all of those situations that's the case, but in a lot of those situations, a lack of understanding about the gospel and the impact on how we handle and do and engage in conflict is at least a significant pressure point on that. Uh, last two ones that we'll uh, close our time with today is this. Uh, the last one is this, is evaluate your resolution mechanism. Evaluate your resolution mechanism. And so what I mean by this is not only do I want you to uh, kind of show me what your pattern of conflict is, but next I want you to tell me how do you resolve your conflicts? And I'll give you four, uh, four F words that kind of, you can kind of begin to place yourself in. The first one is fight. You fight it out. Your resolution is you kind of just fight to the end, last one standing in the ring, they kind of are declared the winner. So you can imagine a, a face-to-face couple just going back and forth, and it's kind of like a war of attrition. Finally, one person just gives up. You just fight it out, and you're like, fine, you're the winner. Let her have the sleepover. I'm sick and tired of arguing with you. That's a, that's a way that you resolve conflict, right? Maybe the conflict ends, but you and I all know what's going to happen in two weeks when she wants to go over to spend the night. You're going to have that conflict. You're going to get back on that merry-go-round. Number two is fake. You kind of fake it. I think a lot of times, wives, this is a default resolution mechanism, right? A husband, will, you'll, you'll have a huge blow up. There will be a huge concern. You'll push, 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 and escalate. The husband will try and do some things not perfectly. And the husband will say, well, are, are we okay? And the wife will be like, yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. And the husband's like, oh, I'm sensing that you're not fine. No, I'm fine. I'm fine. And you're like, and guys, being as dense as we are, we're like, oh, okay, great. And you turn the TV back on, Right. And in in that moment, right, you realize that the conflict might have gotten resolved, but it is a peace faking, right? It's not a peacemaking. That the way that we have resolved that conflict, we've not fought it out, but we've just faked it, right? And again, what's going to be the end result? Two weeks later or two days later or two months later, because we've not resolved that biblically, it's going to cycle back in. Uh, The third one is fizzle. So fight, fake, fizzle. Uh, Again, this is similar to the other two, but a lot of times I'll see couples uh, engage in this where uh, this is what I call kind of like a multi-day conflict, and I'm sure all of you guys have had this, where you'll have a conflict, a conversation that'll stretch into the next day because you're not able to, to, to figure it out, and it goes over the weekend, and it just keeps going on and on, and then you kind of reach a point where you're like, I don't even honestly remember what we were fighting about. 
And then kind of just peters out because some of the concerns that you were initially fighting about aren't even relevant anymore. And so it kind of feels good because you're not really fighting anymore. Nobody's really having to give up anything, but it kind of just fizzles out. And the dynamic sometimes, another way that we put this is we talk about sweeping things under the rug. And sometimes that is a resolution mechanism that couples will have where they'll just, hey, we're not, we're not terribly mad at each other. We're not fighting one another. We're just going to kind of shove it under the rug. But here's the problem with shoving things under the rug. Pretty soon the rug gets pretty lumpy. And you look back at the rug of your marriage and you're like, man, there's, there are so many lumps in this rug that like, I can't even walk over this rug without stumbling and tripping over myself because we've just shoved everything underneath it rather than actually dealing with it. So if we're not going to resolve our conflicts through fighting, through faking it, through fizzling it, the last one that, uh, that obviously I'm going to be advocating for is through forgiveness. The way that we resolve conflict is through biblical forgiveness. And so because it's so important, we're going to spend a whole, our whole final session talking about forgiveness. But forgiveness to me, if you were to ask me, what is the secret, the key to Christian marriage, it would be that. It would be biblical forgiveness. And so we'll unpack all of that together. But uh, when you think about your resolution, your conflict resolution, this would be a helpful way to think about it. Hey, what is the most common way that we resolve our conflict? Or maybe even to help us out to kind of jog our memory train, as it were, think about the last fight that you had with your spouse. What was the last fight that you had with your spouse? Hopefully, uh, hopefully, at least is maybe still somewhat in your memory and you're remembering at least certain aspects of it. My question would be, how did it get resolved? How did it get resolved? Did you just fight it out? Did you fake? Has it just kind of fizzled out where each of you kind of just threw up your hands? Or uh, was someone, one of the spouses, did somebody say, hey, I was wrong, will you forgive me? Was forgiveness a centerpiece of that conflict resolution? So that can be by way of uh, conviction, but maybe also comfort for those of you uh, who are in the habit of resolving your conflicts biblically. Uh, last one in terms of conflict resolution, and we do a lot of work with this with couples, is distinguishing between compromise and consensus distinguishing between compromise and consensus. And what I've tried to uh, visually put there for you by way of a diagram or a figure is to help show you the difference between a compromise model and a consensus model. The first uh, figure, figure one, represents what I call a compromise model. So a lot of times in conflict resolution, the way that we kind of come to an end is what we would say is a compromise. And you'll probably hear that talked a lot about in like marriage self-help books. Uh, you'll hear people say, hey, in marriage, you have to learn to what? You have to learn to compromise. The, the problem with compromising, though, is that it's based on a lose-lose proposition, right? Each individual in the relationship has to lose 50% of, of what they want in a given moment to meet the other person at the 50-yard at the line, as it were. So the model is, okay, you give up some of what you want, and she's going to give up some of what she wants, and you're going to meet, as it were, at the 50-yard line. Now, the trouble with this is what happens if you give a different amount, give up a different amount than what your spouse is willing to, right? So you're like being a really good person. You're like, hey, I'm going to give up 50% of what I want out of this conversation. I'm going to go out to the 50-yard line and meet my spouse. But what happens if your spouse is like, well, I'm willing to give some stuff up, but I'm only going to come out to the 25-yard line, as it were. There's, there's a difference, right? You're not going to be meeting in the middle, right? Because there's a huge gap between what you've given up and what she's given up. It's still not enough for each of you to be able to actually reach a compromise. And so the compromise model, which is based off of lose-lose, it ultimately ends up falling apart. 
because all of the work and all the effort it takes to quote unquote give up something that you want only at the back end for most couples opens up an opportunity for bitterness and resentment. Okay, here are all the things that I gave up. Why are you also giving up all of these things so that we can meet in the middle? So the movement, I think, that is a better model for us in Scripture is not a compromise model, but a consensus model of how do we reach consensus. So I think about Philippians 2 where Christ says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Let this mind be in you. And so I'll tell couples, I'll say, listen, there's only one mind of Christ. So if a husband is pursuing the mind of Christ and a wife is pursuing the mind of Christ, guess what's going to happen? You guys are going to be in unity. You will be in unity. I promise you that. If each of you are trying to biblically follow Christ and have his mindset, well, what is that mindset? He is a person who empties himself, who considers others' interests more important to him, more important than his own. So in that second figure, what you see is that in a consensus model, a husband or a wife is willing to, quote-unquote, lose everything, right? He's willing to go from his end zone all the way over to the other opposite end of the field out of self-sacrificial love. And in losing everything, I think paradoxically, you end up gaining everything. Because what you see there in that diagram is if I'm willing to 100% go towards my spouse, and then my spouse is willing to come 100% towards me or 100 yards or whatever sports metaphor you want to use, what that opens up then is an entire playing field, as it were, 100 yards worth of playing field whereby you can reach consensus, right? Another way propositionally maybe to describe this is in Romans 12, Paul talks about let your love be sincere and without hypocrisy. He says, outdo one another in showing love and honor in good deeds. You should, as Christians, just in general, but how much even more so as spouses, how can you seek to be outdoing one another in preferring, right? So there's a conflict. There's a difference of opinions, right? Biblical love comes into that moment and says, you know what? I'm more than willing to give up my position, my rights, my needs for the good of and the pursuit of my spouse. So yeah, I want to hold really tightly to this, but before the Lord, I realize that's not the most important thing right now in the moment. The most important thing is my spouse's sanctification. So I'm willing to release those things, release those desires, and move 100% towards my wife. And then the wife says the same thing, right? She says, hey, it's not worth me hanging on to this and my desires and my wants. I'm willing to, to give those up. I'm willing to go 100% towards my spouse. And it's in the midst of that dynamic of every spouse outdoing one another that I find you create a wonderful seedbed by which couples can reach consensus. So we'll go back to the holiday conversation, right? You have a husband and a wife. They're arguing over where to spend the holidays, how to divide up the time. Hey, let's do, you know, 9 to 9.45 at your mother-in-law's house, and then we're doing 10 to 10.15. I mean, you're just squabbling over time and effort. And, And the Holy Spirit comes into your heart and recalls to mind Philippians 2 about having the mind of Christ, pursuing the mind of Christ. And you say, you know what? I don't, this, is, this is out of my control. This is a, a conversation that has only brought a cycle of conflict for us. How can I most prefer my spouse in this moment? 
and you say, hey, you know what? This holiday, let's, let's do whatever you, you think is going to be most helpful. If it ministers to your family and to your, to, to your extended family, let's, let, let's spend the half day. Let's spend the half day of Christmas with your family. And the husband says, no, honey, like I, I've been praying. I've been convicted. I know that that's hard for you. I know that dynamics between me and my family can be complicated and can be rough. Listen, I, I'm more than happy to put a boundary down with my mom, and, and we, we only need to do a couple hours, and let's go do something with your family. And there's almost this idea of then in that moment, we can kind of outdo one another in showing love and honor. Listen, that movement then when I see my spouse seeking to prefer me and then I'm able to prefer my spouse creates a wonderful opportunity to say, wow, in the midst of this, we're actually, we're actually fighting, quote unquote, over ways that we can love and prefer one another, which is a much better setting and a much better dynamic than this kind of compromise model, right? This, well, if we spend an hour with your mom, guess what? We have to spend an hour with, with my mom. Well, no, no, we got to do this because we did this last Easter. No, what happens then is we open up an opportunity to say, hey, I'm letting go of my rights. I'm letting go of my interests so that we can fully pursue whatever it is that you desire in this moment. And then, again, same thing on the other end. So when we're thinking about conflict, moving out of a compromise model and moving into a consensus model, I find, uh, can be greatly helpful to couples in navigating, especially conflicts where you keep finding yourself getting stuck. Okay? So what we're going to do now is we're going to take a probably a 12, 13-minute break. We're going to come back at 2 o'clock we're going to do our last session. You guys have persevered through so well. We're going to talk about the secret to a good marriage, which I've already told you, so it's not a secret. It's forgiveness. Um, but we're going to unpack forgiveness, what it isn't, and then we'll follow up with what it is and try to give you some practical things. So we'll see you at 2 o'clock.